Emma. How are you? I'm good. We're back. It's been such a long time. (laughs) It's been such a long time. History's Um, remained sexy, but we have not not been looking at it for a while. No, I mean, you have been, but... Not in audio format. Not in audio format. In written format, people made me write books instead. Yeah. Which is fine. I like it. They pay me money to do that. And nobody really pays me money to chat to you about history. (laughs) (laughs) Not enough to live on, at least. No. But yeah, but I wrote two books. And you wrote two books? Two books. Two books. So four books between us in like a year was a lot of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I got very tired. Yeah, same. But now we have written all our books, and even better, Oliver is back from paternity leave. So hopefully by the time people are listening to this, we will sound less like two people who don't know what they're doing were doing their best, (laughs) and more like a professionally trained person (laughs) using proper software to make us sound beautiful. Uh, That's the dream. It is. So, well, it's the official welcome back, Oliver. <laughs> to make us sound like we know what we're doing and that we're having a good time. But yeah, should we reintroduce ourselves in case people have forgotten who we are? Probably. You go first. Okay, so I'm Dr. Emma Southern. I'm a Roman historian and author of now four books. The next one will be out in September. It's very exciting. This is the women, the the women of Rome. Yeah, so if you're in the UK or probably in Europe, then it will be called A History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women. And if you're in North America, then it will be called A Rome of One's Own. I'm so jealous of the Americans for getting that title. <laughs> and who are you? I am Janina Matthewson. I am a novelist and scriptwriter and what have you. I know nothing, but I'm here. And I uh, have a novel due out in July under a different name because it's a different sort of novel than I normally write. Yeah. What's it called? Beach Rivals. It's a fun wee rom-com set in Bali. It's sexy and fun and escapist and nice. Perfect for your... So you get Janina's book, which is... Is it Georgie Tilney, the name that you get? That's right. That's my my new nom de plume. (laughs) So, yeah, so you can read that one when you're on holiday in the summer and then you can get my one for Christmas. And that's a perfect... A book for seasons. <laughs> but yeah, today, it's brilliant. We are not talking about Romans, and we're not talking about um, sexy people falling in love in Bali. We're talking about a thing which has been really intimidating to me, and um, one of the reasons why we have not recorded for so long because the idea of researching this has been so overwhelming. We're talking about <laughs> Vikings. <laughs> What's up with them? What is the deal with Vikings? So this comes from the two people have asked us this question. One is Luca Blumenthal, who asked quite simply, what's the deal with Vikings? And one is Mats Johansson, whose name makes it sound like he might actually know more than we do. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect he might be a Scandinavian (laughs) who asked, were the Vikings the ISIS of the 900s? And then they've sent some kind of supplementary questions about were the Vikings really the criminal outcasts of their homelands who raided the coasts and came over to Britannia but never really in the homelands were praised for their epic warrior things they did? And where does our probably much idealised view of Viking culture come from and how did it evolve from the actual lives of Vikings? What is the history of Nordic mythology and the Edda saga, which we are going to do in a second episode because it is too much? And... The most important question, do you like Assassin's Creed Valhalla? (laughs) So a wide range of questions there. So what we've decided to do is do three of them in this episode, being do you like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which we'll get out of the way first, and then the criminal outcasts and where does our view of Viking culture come from? And then we're going to do Nordic mythology and the sagas in part two, because both of these questions are really massive and cover a good like 200 years of history and an entire culture 
that spreads across a big old chunk of the world. So <laughs> we figured we'd try to do that rather than like try and squish everything in and be really kind of brief about everything. We'll try and squish them all into two and be less brief. <laughs> <laughs> so question number one, do you like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Janina? I do like Assassin's Creed Valhalla. It's a lot of fun. You play as the adopted daughter of someone who is attacked by and then swears allegiance to Harold Fairhair. Fairhair or Finehair? Uh-huh. I've seen it both ways. I think he's called both, yeah. Yeah. And in disgust at this, you run away and start a settlement in England where you trot around helping some Saxons and, and fighting other Saxons and coming up against a cult. And my favourite part of it is you come across these other Vikings sometimes who are just, like, hanging around. One of them with his young son, which is wild when you find out what they're there for. (laughs) And you trot up and talk to them and they're like, I have lived my life and it's over now, but I want to die in battle so I can enter the gates of Valhalla. Can you please fight me to the death? And they're like, they're big hefty boss fights like they're hard to kill you've got to level up before you take them on and then you just fight them to death and kill them so that they can they can go to Valhalla instead of going wherever you go if you don't die in battle so I do like it it's a lot of fun it is way too big I think or most games are too big now Assassin's Creed Syndicate is the perfect size I think they've nailed that and then the ones since then have just been just so big but Apart from that, it's a lot of fun. I don't care for the... There's a whole section where you, like, play... (laughs) Where you play as the gods and, like, you go into... Like, you are, I think, Mm -hmm. Odin. And there's this whole thing with Loki and and Fenrir and all of this stuff, which I'm not so keen on. But the the base story where you're just pottering around pre-England England is a lot of fun. Alfred the Great is the bad guy, which is nice. That is nice. I quite like that, actually. Yeah. Oliver told us that it is okay and not as good as Odyssey, which I'm pretty sure is the Greek one where you are. Odyssey is great uh, and has like you can choose with Odyssey if you play as a boy or a girl, and if you play as the girl Cassandra, she rips unbelievable amounts of ass. She's so cool. Uh Um, Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But is as good maybe as Origins. I have never played an Assassin's Creed game because I cannot play any three dimensional game. And I cannot really play anything that is not basically 2D. I can do a 2D side scrollers uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, uh, or platformers. And that is basically, or my true, true love for games really is LucasArts point and click adventures. <laughs> and anything that is not either basically the original Game Boy Super Mario <laughs> <laughs> or or something very similar, largely on the Switch, or is a LucasArts point-and-click adventure, then I'm not not really interested. <laughs> mm, that's good. I, they make, make me seasick and I get trapped in corners. So I'm afraid I have absolutely no opinions, but I would say it, look, we have a solid three out of five stars from yeah. the people amongst yeah. us who do play games. I'm excited about the new Assassin's Creed, which is set in Baghdad. So fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping it gets into some of the cool stuff that we talked about in our Arabic libraries yeah. um, episodes because it's around that time, I think, that it's set. So We've got some fun. Baghdad in this episode, um, which I feel like people probably won't be expecting. So but we're going to call that a teaser? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might be expecting it if they are Assassin's Creed fans because the, the hero of the Baghdad Assassin's Creed that comes out this year is in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. He's the one who's like... Well, I won't. I won't get into it, but you know, that's nice. It's a nice wee connective tissue. Okay, good. No spoilers, because otherwise we'll get hate mail. <laughs> right. Okay. So now we're going to talk about actual Vikings and the view of Vikings that you get from anything that is kind of popular culturally, and then the view of Vikings that Viking historians have about Vikings, um, <laughs> who are mostly archaeologists. Because most of what we know, actually know about Vikings comes from archaeology rather than texts. And because the texts are, and this is kind of the key, I think, to Vikings, the texts are either written by the victims of the Vikings or they were written 
solidly 200 years later by people kind of imagining Vikings <laughs> rather than being written by the Vikings about themselves. So what we have is lots and lots of stories written by mostly church people being furious that they engaged with the Vikings <laughs> and who see the Vikings <laughs> as monstrous heathens who are barbaric in the extreme and who turn up and slaughter everybody and do terrible warrior things and then leave again. And yeah. they assumed kind of went back home and that they turned up and just kind of murdered a bishop and then ran away. Yeah. Stole or, a bunch of gold. Sacked, sacked yeah. an abbey, you know. Sacked an abbey, sacked a church, took people's jewellery and then ran off again. And that is, like, Viking as a word is a weird one in that it refers to both an activity of pirate raiding and also the men themselves it is like inherently a masculine term that refers to pirates, basically. And if you look at the etymologies of the word pirate, then you find that every single person who has ever thought about it has come up with their own version. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because nobody knows, but there's about a thousand different different versions of where they think the word viking comes from but basically when it's used it's referring to pirates and raiders and lads turning up and making everybody unhappy but they are also called the northmen <laughs> the rus the varangians which is one that i quite like the danes obviously and just heathens sure which I think kind of summarizes. It's um, like one of those terms like barbarian, right? Which originally just meant someone who didn't speak Greek and now means. Yeah, now means like, and then very quickly, yeah, came to mean a person who is uncivilized. Yeah, it's an othering term. Yes. And they have all of these names because they did not just come to Britain and Ireland and Iceland, where we kind of, I think, associate them the most, but spread from Scandinavia pretty much in every direction. And the majority of them, or at least to begin with, they went towards Central and Eastern Europe. So for the most part, they were going towards what is now like Latvia and Russia and those areas across the Baltic Sea and Kiev and Estonia, all the way over to Constantinople. And there's some cool descriptions of them from lots of Eastern European and Arabic and Byzantine sources of them. They would go as far as a boat would take them and then they would all get out of their boat and carry it to the next bit of water, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were never, it uh, seems, very keen on marching. <laughs> I mean, like, I can understand that. <laughs> marching because, boring as hell. Yeah. And they're because they're not under any circumstances an army. For the most of their history, they are not an army. But we have this image of them. So I think all of my, because I've not played Assassin's Creed, but I have seen Vikings, the TV show. And more importantly, I have seen The Northman starring Alexander Skarsgård, which was mostly filmed in Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen neither of those things. Uh, um, but I have played Assassin's Creed. So. I wouldn't necessarily recommend The Northman, to be honest. I didn't really enjoy that. <laughs> I, yeah, I have weird feelings about, um, what's his name, Old Eggers, something Eggers. Robert Eggers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, he always leaves me a little bit cold. See, I really like The Witch, or The Vavitch, as it's called in our house. And it's then called I've The Vavitch in our house as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then The Lighthouse was fine, but was quite drunk when I watched it, and I've only seen it <laughs> once, so I don't know that I can judge it properly. But then I felt nothing about Northman. But I think that that kind of Alexander Skarsgård, giant lad who's six foot five, very blonde, a kind of perfect specimen of health who, and that kind of very washed out palette that you get with everything, like where yeah. everything is, there's no bright color. Not everything is gray and grim and horrible and dirty. Yeah. That kind of summarizes how people see the Viking world, the Viking period, incidentally, according to like actual historians starts about 800 well like the 790s and then goes through to about 
There's arguments about where it ends, but somewhere in about 1050, 1060, the latest that the, it's considered to end as the Viking period and then move into just the Middle Ages is 1066, when Harold Godwinson, the last Viking king of England, um, or the last like claimant to the throne of the king of England, is killed in York. Sorry to interrupt. It's Emme, the footnotes. It was actually Harald Hardrada. Yes, so latest point that the Viking period ends is 1066. But basically it's that 200 period between like 800 and 1000-ish CE that is considered to be the Viking period where the Vikings, which means Scandinavian people, are the dominant force in kind of northern europe but also and britain and but are also a huge force in western europe in general central europe eastern europe and are a a powerful trading and military force right the way up to byzantium so they are a cultural influence across a huge chunk of europe and into into asia it ends because the or stops being called the viking age because the three countries that we now know of as scandinavia which is norway sweden and denmark and does not include the dutch however much people want to <laughs> <laughs> like shoehorn them in there for no good reason so it's just norway sweden and denmark is scandinavia those at the as we get into the 11th century they have coalesced into kingdoms so they become proper kingdoms with one king who is overseeing things with bureaucracies with you know centralized economies that is a vast departure from the viking age which is a completely ad hoc set of of chieftains and small groups and people kind of doing their own thing without any big centralization so it's that process of centralization that comes about as a result of viking expansion that causes scandinavia to become kingdoms which then moves us into the middle ages basically or the high middle ages which, which is essentially what happened all over europe at varying points like little groups became bigger groups yeah took a whole of land and kept it and became kingdoms and then like slowly merged together and became countries and it's all very fluid and not at all as static as it as I think we tend to conceptualize it as you know yeah you know <laughs> like when like the viking age covers this period of english history before it's england right yeah. it comes they come in when there's mercia and um wessex and and they're slowly starting to well, they're, they're constantly shifting in power balances until finally Alfred the Great takes enough of the country to yeah. dominate. And a lot yeah. of the, even then, a lot of the kind of post-Alfred kings are what we would call Vikings. So like Canute yeah. and his descendants and Ethelred and all of that are Danish. Okay, so we're going to kind of, I'm going to do a very brief and very vague chronology, basically, of the Viking mm -hmm. era, which is that it begins with... People in Scandinavia who live largely kind of agricultural lives, who are not centralised in any way. There's no kind of empires or kingdoms or anything. They're kind of chilling, living their lives as agricultural farming, hunting, fishing, fighting with one another, constantly raiding one another, but pretty focused on boats. And like mm -hmm. the oldest boats that we have archaeologically are from like the 4th century. And they're probably older ones, but wood does not survive <laughs> very well. But they're knocking about in boats and they love to do boat stuff. But they only have boats which are driven by ore power. So they are like driven entirely by manpower. So you have 30 or to 60 people on a boat, but that can only take you so far. And then part of this is because making sails is a huge investment of time and energy and resources. But they reach a point around about the mid-8th century where they can start adding sails to boats, basically. And that completely changes the way that Scandinavia can interact with the rest of the world. Because when you have a sail, you can go much faster and much further. And all of a sudden, you can go from fighting your friends across the fjords to fighting your new friends across the sea. <laughs> it's very exciting. It is incredibly exciting. And they have to have had, like, you know, a, a pretty strong... You need to already have money to be able to do this because people have done, like, 
basically experiments with making Viking longships and Viking longboats and hand making sails. And it takes like mm-hmm. 500 hours and the wool of like 500 sheep to make a sail because a sail is like 90 meters wide. And so yeah. you need to. And it needs to be pretty sturdy. Yeah. Um, and that's really all they have is wool. They have to have kind of resources to be able to do this. But once they have those resources, mm. once they have sails, they can go so much further. Um, and they can go and find out what is on the other side of the seas that surround them. And quite often yeah. what they find is that inexplicably to them, people have built massive churches and abbeys and just put all their gold in it. <laughs> <laughs> just waiting in one place. They don't have a guard dog or anything. And then they've just put like their sappiest guys around the gold. <laughs> <laughs> who mostly just roll around and pray when you turn up. And so Yeah, they're just there copying out the Bible over and over yeah. again. <laughs> so basically, so they go um kind of eat like up towards the Baltics first. Largely what they are doing up in that direction is trading, but there is also a fair whack of pirate raiding. But they first start to appear mm-hmm. in texts in what I kind of assume most people are probably interested in, which is in Britain and Ireland in the 790s, because they do just start turning up seemingly as far as their kind of chroniclers and the eyewitnesses to this are concerned, out of nowhere. Like as far they're mm-hmm. used to war being a certain way and for it to be mostly land based and to you to know it's coming. Like if someone is yeah. going to come and fight you, then they're going to come marching across. There's gonna be some kind of army with a leader and they are going they're gonna be you're going to be prepared, basically. There'll probably have been a conversation yeah. about it beforehand. And at the very least, you might have... It, well, and also because it takes a really long time to move an army across the land. And in that time, scouts are riding around on horseback and like letting you know there's a massive force, you know, on the horizon. Yeah, and exactly. have got like a day because they're marching, so they're going much slower. Whereas what the Vikings do is they appear... By the time they've appeared on the horizon or they've started coming up your river, it's too late. Like, you see them maybe a matter of hours before they appear and sometimes not even that. So from their perspective, this is something that... So Lindisfarne is kind of often seen as the first big Viking raid and, like, the first time that it comes to the attention of Western Europe, basically... Such so as in 793, we know about it from the writings of Alcuin of York, who was at the court of Charlemagne, and he kind of basically writing like what's going on in his writing a chronicle, basically. So he's not an eyewitness, and he's not really he didn't see anything, and he's hearing maybe a third hand account. Well, he considers the entire place to be the worst, like the entire year to be a terrible year. And he considers the Vikings to be kind of sent by God to basically punish everything. So he says, This year came dreadful forewarnings over the land of the Northumbrians, terrifying the people most woefully. There were immense sheets of light rushing through the air and whirlwinds. And this is my favourite bit, fiery dragons flying across the firmament. That is very good. Uh-huh, the fiery dragons. These tremendous tokens were soon followed by a great famine, and not long after, on the sixth day before the Ides of January in the same year, the harrowing inroads of heathen men made lamentable havoc in the Church of God and the Holy Island by rapine and slaughter. Yeah, sounds pretty rough. Yeah, so, well, I mean, I personally would be more stressed about the dragons, but he seems kind of like, so there's the winds, there's the dragons, but worse than that, there's heathens. <laughs> They're coming in and desecrating where all our gold is. Yes. And that is kind of like when you read the sources, it is that idea of desecration, which is the real issue for them. Kind of the fact that the Vikings as raiding parties, so they're basically relatively small at the beginning groups of men who appear very swiftly, take stuff very quickly, and then disappear mm-hmm. off again. But they really do spe- like focus on churches. <laughs> which is presume- which is smart. The church had a lot of money. The church yeah. is 
a wealthy, wealthy institution. It always has been. So, yeah, darting in, stealing their gold from under the monk's eyes. Yeah. Smart. One of the books that I read for this, which is called The Age of the Vikings by Anders, something beginning with a W, I'll put it in the notes, <laughs> has, argues towards the end that actually the Vikings did Western Europe a favour particularly Britain and Ireland, because after the Roman Empire, um, when everything kind of fragmented apart, even in the kind of Holy Roman Empire of Charlemagne, there's not a lot of liquid cash around Mm -hmm. and the economies are largely barter economies. But if you need to barter something, like if you've got a sheep and you want a sword, then you Mm -hmm. either need to go through a series of like different transactions or you have to find someone with a sword that they who also wants a sheep yeah this is why we invented money exactly (laughs) like this is yeah exactly why it exists but there's not a lot going around because most of the gold and silver and precious metals were literally just locked up in abbeys and churches and they were in reliquaries (laughs) and they were in altars and so when what the vikings did was they turned up nicked it all and then they largely took it, melted it, and started trading it around. Yeah. And they actually kind of got the economy of Western Europe moving. <laughs> Some of it was removed from the economy because the main thing that they would do is take it, then go to Eastern Europe and Central Europe, and then they would trade mm-hmm. and they would buy cool shit with it. The other thing that they were taking, and this is the kind of less good bit that does have to say get skimmed over a tiny bit in some of the sources that I read, uh-huh. is they were taking people. They weren't sure. Their primary thing that they were trading for a lot of the time was people. They were slave traders. And so they would turn up in a place, they would sweep up as much gold and as many people as they could, and then they would take them over to Central Europe and they would sell the people and get money for them get other good stuff for it and then they would either go back to scandinavia or go back to wherever they had raided and then they would buy more stuff and then they would there's a big thing about the gift economy as well which is the the way you display your wealth among viking men particularly is not by having cool stuff but by giving away cool stuff yeah the, the real status of like what you can lavish on someone else yeah exactly so or you give them like a beautiful silver chalice or a bit of land or a lovely ivory whatever and they then owe you their kind of fighting prowess or their loyalty they give you that and then you give them more things and they give you more things and it's kind of reciprocal in that way so that what they're doing obviously plenty of enslaved people they're keeping for themselves they have all of their eyewitness accounts are like yeah no they have shitloads of slaves uh, <laughs> <laughs> mostly female slaves like love a female slave mm. yeah all right do you want another uh, account of why we think the vikings are massive bastards yeah, like, absolutely. Okay, this one's quite a nasty one. This is from Nantes in France. It comes from 843. And this is an eyewitness account. And this happened on the Feast of St. John. So historians are like, this is quite impressive because the Vikings basically waited until they knew there was a big feast day when everyone would have their best clothes and jewellery on. Mm-hmm. And then everybody would be in one place. Smart. Yeah. So they roll up to Nantes and says, the Vikings slew the entire multitude they found there without regard to age or sex. They cruelly killed the priest and bishop Gohardus. His name is Gohardus, which I find entertaining. (laughs) That's amazing. It's a good name. Gohardus, who died saying, Sursum Corda, which means lift up your hearts. All the other monks, whether they were in the church or outside or at the altar, were put to the sword and disemboweled. This is where it gets nasty, so maybe if you've got children nearby, well, listen to this, skip over it. Children hanging onto their dead mother's breasts drank blood rather than milk. The stone flags of the church ran red with the blood of the holy men, and the holy altar dripped the blood of the innocents. The pagans then pillaged the city, seized all its treasures, and set fire to the church. They then took great numbers of prisoners as hostages for ransom and returned to their ships. Now, first off, if they've killed everybody without regard to age or sex. It's amazing. How was there anyone left to be hostage? That they also managed to take so many hostages. <laughs> uh, so first off, we've learned that the Vikings can both kill people and have them be alive at the same time. That is 
having your cake and eating it too. <laughs> um, but the main thing, it seems, is that they went in, killed anyone who tried to protect, like, the altar, essentially, mm-hmm. took the gold and then took everybody else, and then they ransomed them back, and then they run off with them. And they, a lot of their brutality and the kind of the nastiness is in the fact that they are hurting holy stuff. They're hurting holy people and holy altars, and that they don't have any particular respect for the um what they the writers who are mostly churchmen themselves consider to be fundamentally sacred places that to them it's it's incredibly ironic when you think about the attitudes that european colonizers had towards (laughs) right the spiritual practices across the whole rest of the world when they colonized it yeah and so it's what i thought when like all i could think when i was reading this is if we had like only or primarily a load of written sources about what native americans felt and saw when european colonizers turned up in america or what the inca and aztec cultures and the maya felt (laughs) when spanish churchmen were literally burning every single one of their sacred objects and books and like trying to eradicate everything that they had like if we had their words and their perspectives rather than just the like spanish guys being like obviously we got rid of all this disgusting non-christian stuff (laughs) it would be pretty similar although it's interesting because this is also like the saxons were also colonizers yes they had they did this to the britons and then had it done to them yeah by the the danes and they didn't like it they did not like it at all yeah it turns out it's bad and they were very (laughs) stroppy about the whole situation interestingly enough we also have arabic sources and central european sources where they also describe how awful and terrible and disgusting and like heathen-y the it's not a word but i've made i've made it a word um the vikings were <laughs> they called them the rus but it, again exclusively seeing them through the lens of ritual impurity and like ritual mm. filthiest so there's this guy called abed ibn fadlan who was a diplomat and a cleric in uh, abbasid caliphate so kind of from baghdad this is the appearance of baghdad <laughs> <laughs> who traveled to russia and traveled across eastern europe talking to converts across eastern europe and he wrote a book called the risala or the risala and he him wrote a very long description of the men that he called the Rus, who are the Scandinavian settlers and Scandinavian traders. So this is where they end up, basically, <laughs> after they have nicked everything from the abbeys in Britain. They are then going over and trading for stuff over in in Central Europe. Uh, he describes them as the filthiest of all God's creatures. Although he does, in fairness, say that they have perfect bodies and are very tall. Um, of which more later but so he, he thinks they're very handsome but the filthiest of all god's creatures they have no modesty when it comes to defecating or urinating and do not wash themselves when intercourse puts them in a state of ritual impurity they do not even wash their hands after eating indeed they are like roaming asses they arrive more their boats by the by the ittle and build large wooden houses on its banks they share a house in groups of 10 or 20 sometimes more each reclines on a couch. They are accompanied by beautiful female slaves for trade with the merchants. They have intercourse with their female slaves in full view of their companions, and sometimes they gather in a group and do this in front of one another. <laughs> <laughs> they, get, they gather in, the, in, in a group yeah. to do some sex. And do some sex. So, so basically, yeah. they don't understand like they don't have in like ritual impurity they don't have what he considers to be Mm. correct modesty and privacy and they don't hide when they're having sex so it's like pretty much entirely through the lens of what he considers to be cleanliness from the muslim perspective which is not that far off from cleanliness from a christian perspective he also has the entire description of a viking funeral which is very very detailed and has uh, the um a female slave offering to have herself killed so that she can like be buried with him which is a good fun read but (laughs) Yeah, so they are seen by basically people who are from a different religion as from as them as being the most disgusting, like ritually, spiritually impure and impious. And that is a large part of their <laughs> myth of 
their horror basically because when you add up the numbers that they're actually killing in comparison to like the numbers that kings are killing it's not very big like they're not killing the thousands that might die in battle they're not doing like ritual massacres there's this whole thing with charlemagne killing four thousand five hundred people in a single day and they're not killing anything like those numbers and in fact they prefer it but they're just doing it in churches yeah but they're doing it in churches and that upsets people Yeah, it's an attitude that s- survives, right? Like this is this is what you see with the sort of evangelical right is just that inability to understand people who don't believe the same things that they do. You know, it, it is, uh, it's. I think you know, it's it's a really common failing. Yeah. Of of yeah acceptance of different viewpoints. Yes, they just cannot and will not understand that they don't think that their sacred spaces are sacred spaces. Yeah. But yeah, so that that is kind of f- basically phase 1, I would suppose, <laughs> of <laughs> viking contact with the rest of the world. They get sails, they turn up and they go like you just put all of that there so we can have it. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for organising this so tidily for yeah, us. Yeah, and then, like, <laughs> then these like guys are just going to, like, don't do that. And we're like, no, I'm probably going to do it. Because like... <laughs> <laughs> you don't seem able to stop us. Yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> and then, obviously, like, the successful ones are really successful. And then they can employ or, like, connect more people to their group who and they go home or whatever and they turn up and they're like we got all of this stuff it was well easy and then after they've done it like three or four times all they have to do is turn up on the horizon and send a messenger and say i'll tell you what if you send us like xyz amounts of money then we'll we won't pillage you yeah we won't murder anyone (laughs) and there and people do like all the time they start being given dane geld all over the show they Mm -hmm. don't even have to murder anybody after a little while basically just doing some extortion on all of europe exactly and then obviously the more people back home hear about this the more like the more people keep doing it and there's a whole question about like what makes people leave scandinavia like were they really criminal outcasts is the question that we got which is a thing that this idea that I think comes from Eric the Red, who founded the short-lived original Viking settlement on Greenland, which the story mm-hmm. goes from the Icelandic sagas, which we'll talk about more another time, that he murdered somebody on Iceland and was kicked out. And so rather than go back to Denmark, he just continued sailing north to see what would happen and found Greenland mm-hmm. and then set up his own little colony there, which... Largely went badly, to be honest, but... It's very cold in Greenland. <laughs> it's real cold. <laughs> and all of the archaeology of it is like, this seemed like they had a real sucky time. <laughs> like, it's cold, you can't really grow anything. It's like, it makes Iceland look brilliant. But so that, like, that yeah. is... Yeah, and I, re- I read a thing about how they didn't, they failed to sort of adopt what were Inuit practices in similar regions, which were mainly regular sealing and yeah. relying more on the sea for your, than, than you do on farming. And they just didn't didn't quite no they wanted to like adopt which is because wherever else they had settled in like basically everywhere else they settle all over the show so you have them obviously huge settlements in britain and ireland in france the kind of normandy is normandy because it's founded by a northman Mm -hmm. and you know right the way through central europe and the baltics and into russia so all over the show they're happily settling down and doing what they were doing at home yeah and kind of mm, sucks to be the guys who were living there before <laughs> <laughs> because like the second wave of it basically is that they start parceling out land to one another they're like this is like one of the proposed reasons why they actually leave is what the people who are leaving are young men who don't have much keeping them at home or young families who want to try something new yeah. and all of the archaeology is clearly saying that there are families like settling that they're not like all raiding all the time they are turning up to live yeah. in these other countries in exactly the same way that farming and trading and, yeah. and assimilating sometimes with the cultures that they now live amongst like there isn't it's not 
it's not always us versus them, right? There are yeah. there's cooperation as well, and there is intermarriage and all sorts. Yeah, and sometimes it is, but it's very similar to like why do people leave their home to go to the Americas in the 17th century? <laughs> and it's because then they want something new, they want excitement, they want profit, they want a new life, they want possible glory and a town named after them they want i don't know whatever it is that makes you get on a boat for six months to go to a country you've never seen before or what made the people of the east coast decide that they wanted to take the oregon trail over to the west coast which seemed to be an objectively fucking horrible thing to do (laughs) yeah if i learned anything from playing that game when i was at school it was a terrible idea yeah and uh, you know i um i read the indifferent stars above which is a story that just may sound horrible just seems appalling yeah. wouldn't wouldn't do it if you paid me but that's because i like cozy things <laughs> um, <laughs> and in the same way were i a scandinavian in the like 10th century or 9th century and you were like do you want to come over to this new country that we've discovered it's called we've decided to you know it's england we've largely agreed with the guys there that we can have their land by which i mean we just sort of punched them until they stopped (laughs) yeah we're thinking of setting up a kingdom there i would be like the many many people who stayed at home and be like no i'm all right i've got a house here have you got a house there yeah (laughs) i like my house and i wish to stay here and you do i like I like such things as physical comfort. Yeah, I do like physical comfort. (laughs) So, yeah, so there's, you know, the people who go are the people who want adventure, basically. And there's plenty of people Mm -hmm. who stay at home and don't go. Yeah, so they start settling and that is kind of the second phase and that is when you start to get the battles. Yeah, so that is kind of phase two. And then they become massive traders. Mm -hmm. They are trading all kinds of things. They have immense trade networks across Europe where they are moving all kinds of goods from Iceland. So they're taking, they massively hunt walruses. So walrus skins and walrus ivory is like a big Mm -hmm. thing that they can sell and that people love because you can carve it and it looks cool and polar bear skins and furs of all kinds of animals and like wolves and bears and polar bears and whale bones and they're taking all of that stuff and obviously slaves into into europe and into byzantium and into the the kind of trading networks that then connect to the silk roads and the spice roads although they do not seem as far as we can tell, we were massively interested in spices. <laughs> Certainly no one mentions that they were into spices. Well, they took comes back, or at least what comes back and is then found in grave goods, because we were talking about this earlier. When you start looking at Vikings, you get two things, which is the sagas, um, which all sound well cool, but were written way later and don't really represent any kind of reality and just tons of archaeology tons of we opened a grave and we tested it for strontium (laughs) (laughs) we found this person was buried here and they had this in their grave and this person was buried here and they had this in their grave Yeah. yeah and it's like super interesting in a way in that you're like wow that's cool that they had that thing in their grave like i read a whole thing about a woman who's called estred sigfast's daughter who died kind of in the 10th century from somewhere around Stockholm and her grave and then she has what's called a rune stone which is where we know about runes from which basically is you know just a gravestone essentially like a memorial stone Mm -hmm. but from her tomb you can tell that she is very wealthy and that she has all this stuff but you can also see that she went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and that she came back again and she has stuff in her grave from her pilgrimage to Jerusalem Um, and she also wrote her name in a book of lives on a monastery on the way she was a converted Christian yeah and you can also tell that she had two husbands and one of them died but she was buried with her first husband rather than her second husband and and it's fun you can kind of build a life from it but by the 75th one Actually, I'll tell you what the most fun thing about about the graves for me was, was that they have measured, like, what the average height of a Viking person is. Uh-huh. And, like, all of the sources describe them as being giants and just coming right at you and looming over you. And so they're... And obviously, people in Scandinavia now are, like, on average, globally very tall. Mm-hmm. 
but the average height of a Viking male skeleton from the Viking age, being 800 to, say, 1050, is five foot six. <laughs> okay. With the average woman I mean, being five it's foot taller one. than me. Yeah. This is even better. It's shorter than the average height of a, a Scandinavian person from, like, the centuries before the Viking age. Oh, wow. So they just got really short for this period of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. On average, they were about five foot seven beforehand. So, but yeah, five foot six. Amazing. And they mostly had astonishingly fucked up teeth, which I find really hilarious. <laughs> They're like, the archaeologists are like, so this is, this is in Scandinavia. So maybe the ones <laughs> that left were better. But <laughs> they ground their grain. They threshed their grain on the ground. And so they ate a lot of sand and rocks, which shattered their teeth. <laughs> I bet it wasn't great for the digestive systems either. No, and he's like, so like 100% of, of Scandinavian people in Scandinavia pretty much have broken teeth that are so infected that you can like see the infection a thousand years later. <laughs> Ugh. And they also, like, 50% of adult bones have an iron deficiency, which was probably caused by a fairly persistent diarrhoea. So they were actually... And loads of broken bones. Tons and tons of broken bones. <laughs> so not doing, not doing too so hot on a health. So they're actually kind of limpy with their teeth falling out. <laughs> <laughs> which is what was considered to be, like, peak attract, according to And yet everyone who was attacked by them was like, no, they were giants. There was no way we could hold <laughs> we them back. They yeah. were like... They just yeah. came right at us. <laughs> we didn't We didn't whip out. They were just so strong. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Which, so I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... And then that trading moves on to... It, by the time you get to the end of the 10th century, and then this is what pushes us into the end of the Viking Age, is mass trading with big ships full of grain and fish that are moving across oceans, mm -hmm. which leads to the decline of trading ports um, and trading market towns. Because the other thing that Viking Age kind of pushes in, in Europe, in Northern Europe, in, Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, is urbanisation to a certain extent. Mm -hmm because they force people behind walls. <laughs> <laughs> but also they bring, because they bring trading, they are bringing stuff from Europe, from Byzantium, from India, all the way to Britain for the first time in a long time. People are coming to spaces to trade with them, which is then yeah. bringing in kind of a space where people want to be. And then when you have lots of people coming into one place, there'll be lads who are there being like, I'll polish up your carnelian bead for you. I'm great at sharpening yeah. swords. <laughs> the high street is born. Yeah, pretty much. Like a beginnings of, and the beginnings of kind of artisanal professions growing again yeah. and are moving away. So they do a lot of, I mean, there's a huge human cost for this. They do definitely kill and enslave a ton of people. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> there's no getting away from that. There is no getting away from that, although people do seem to want to not mention it so much. <laughs> and but I think it's because I feel to get the feeling from reading it that Viking historians and Viking archaeologists are like defensive for good reason. Because any time mm -hmm. that they see like the thing that they've dedicated their life to and they spend their lives like writing articles about like this bead that they found or this coin that came from the Abbasid Caliphate that was found in Britain that came through Viking trading of da 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 and they can see, you know, the bones of these people that moved all around the world and they're like, Yeah, these this was such a rich culture of art mm -hmm. and trade and and storytelling and everyone's like so the the Vikings, yeah, like the big lads with the fighting and the bear. <laughs> and they're like, no! <laughs> and then people are asking them about stuff like the Blood Eagle, which... Mm -hmm. This is a fun story, actually. I really like this. So, do you know what the Blood Eagle is? Or is allegedly? No. Okay. So... Again, if you're squeamish or have small children around, maybe cover some ears. But the story of the Blood Eagle, which is claimed to be a traditional Viking punishment and is kind of built into this myth of the Vikings as being particularly bloodthirsty mm -hmm. is that 
but if you were a way to kill someone is to strip the flesh off of the back and then crack open the ribs uh-huh. from the back and then take out the lungs. I think that happened on Hannibal. <laughs> I think it did. I think someone I think someone did that on Hannibal. Yeah. yeah. And that this is like a particularly terrible punishment and then they will die because and like it's kind of splayed out and so that they look like an eagle. The story of the blood eagle comes from a 13th century text called Nine Books of the History of the Danes by a guy with the great name of Saxo Grammaticus. <laughs> That's outstanding. It is pretty good, isn't it? who basically wrote a history of the Danes based on his own misunderstandings of contemporary poetry. (laughs) (laughs) And the description that he invents from, just creates from whole cloth, is his description of the killing of a guy called King Ella of Northumbria by Ragnar Hmm. Lothbrok, which honestly, for Viking names, are not brilliant. (laughs) But so Ragnar Lothbrok, King's King Ella of Northumbria. Hello, me again. It was actually the sense of Ragnar Lopprock that killed King Ayla, in revenge for King Ayla killing Ragnar Lopprock. He threw him into a pit of snakes by the way. Nasty. Um, and this is written about in a kind of a text from the time of Canute, so about 1000, the millennium, by a guy called Sigvatter Thordsen. So I'm so sorry to all of our Scandinavian people. Called the Nutstrapper. Mm-hmm. And he describes Ragnar killing Ella by saying that Ragnar um, allowed the eagle to be cut into Ella's back. Oh, okay. In the context of the whole of po- like Viking era poetry, <laughs> what that means is that he allowed him to be carrion for eagles. The eagles would cut his back and then he left him face down and they would cut his back and eat him. Sure. Which is a whole big thing in... The poetry of the time, they were always saying that people are being left to be eaten by eagles or eaten by carrion. Unfortunately, Saxo Grammaticus didn't know this and didn't have anyone to ask and did not understand what had been written. (laughs) And so, so he was like, well, okay, so an eagle is being cut into the back. So maybe it's the shape of an eagle and that's kind of what some people thought. But then he's like, nah. I've got it. He must be made so it looks like the shape of an eagle. <laughs> um, and he came up with the whole lung thing. That says a lot about him. It says more about you know? him than anything else, doesn't it? It really does. He's also a big proponent of the kind of somewhat imaginary idea of berserkers, mm-hmm. which is like the idea of super warriors who go running into into battle kind of naked or Just... semi-naked. Uh, turn on berserker mode and go exactly and the idea that they feral. are in some kind of trance and that they are fair yeah um and or that they which later becomes that they are kind of magically impervious to weapons and yeah and are special and magic in some way which berserker or berserk means bear shirt and in ninth century poetry like the only contemporary victorian like victorian viking poetry <laughs> very clearly is referring to them as people wearing bear shirts. Mm-hmm. And it first them as bellowing. And then later, Snorri Snorrinson, who will become a big name when we talk about sagas, interpreted this as bear shirts, as in B-A-R-E, mm-hmm. with just a fundamental misreading, like a tiny check. It's, it's something completely different. <laughs> and it's like, ah, the naked guys. <laughs> There are people who believe very strongly in the idea of the berserker as being fundamental in some way to to Norse religion. And there are some people who think that it is a nonsense that was imagined, basically. I mean, it's not... Yeah, it, it feels like one of those things that's actually not that uncommon in that, that there are some soldiers in across all cultures and across all, you know, history who just get a bit single focused when they're in battle and kind of push themselves in a way that most people don't and that it's i think it's interesting to codify that into a specific practice like this in retrospect you know to say that it's special and unique to to vikings i don't think is true but like it's interesting 
like there's a romanticism in the in the picture of the berserker which i think is is why people want to keep it alive maybe there is and this i think is one of the most interesting things about the vikings which is the that their image in kind of popular culture in modern culture is so far removed from the image i think that they had of themselves (laughs) (laughs) yeah like a lot of that image is created by the sagas as well which Mm. are all written in the 13th century so 200 years minimum after the viking period when they're largely written in iceland but other scandinavian ones which are when these places have become kingdoms have become bureaucracies and have become christian writing Mm. about their pre-christian past with not necessarily a whole lot of understanding but a lot of the stories that they tell that are later seen as like epic warrior shit are them being like, oh, God, thank God we have baptism now <laughs> that has calmed <laughs> us all down and has stopped us from being these bloodthirsty un-Christians. Yeah. That we have, like, we wouldn't do things like that anymore. And it's not necessarily, like, heroic shit, but it, it is, like, supposed to be somewhat horrifying as well. Yeah, it's a way of mythologizing the past while also sort of mythologizing the civilised present. Yeah. And so things like, so you get... Another interesting one is boat burials, which in archaeology are people being buried with a boat because their life was to do with a boat somehow. So you do get warriors and Vikings and pirate traders and people who live their life on boats being buried with a boat full of stuff. But they spend months and months digging out the ground and putting a boat in it and then putting the person in with the boat. So the very oldest boat with a sail that we have which is from 820s the Oseberg boat is a boat burial Mm -hmm. and that's great but then that became in Beowulf the idea that they put people on a boat and then sent them out to the river Mm -hmm. and then shot a flaming arrow at them yes and then that kind of gets added on afterwards and so it begins with something that is true and then becomes mythologized and then like why would you send people like everybody likes to keep their people close by so that they can memorialize them like yeah and they like a runestone and they like to tell the story of the people in their lives and to mourn them and to you know most of the runic writings that we have are here lies xyz this is what they did with their life or in memory of this guy and this is what they did with their life not yeah like shoving them on the boat and then pushing all of that stuff just just away just away more and more modern people think of just a way as something that you could be like oh, i can't see it anymore but if there are seafaring people <laughs> who spend a lot of time on boats then they know what's over their horizon <laughs> and yeah. they know that it's gonna like bang into ireland <laughs> yeah so yes yeah, so a lot of this is mythologized by people thinking that they know what they're talking about but they don't and creating a a legend yeah, I think it's also an interesting example of like how we tell stories about ourselves. Like at what point, particularly in, in the UK, at what point did it become interesting and glamorous to examine this Viking past and to talk about Viking heritage being part of this country? You know, we've talked before about the Enlightenment, just everyone suddenly becoming obsessed with the Romans and wanting to be just like the Romans. Like, yeah. I think it says more about the people at that time, what part of history they choose to sort of glom onto and how they embroider that to suit whatever narrative they're trying to tell about themselves in the present. Yeah. And what it usually does is sort of flatten the past, which is necessary, I guess, because like humanity is too big and complicated <laughs> for us to even take in our own present but it gets worse the further back you look and the less information you have, you tend to, like, the concept of Vikings is, like, it makes you think of one type of person, but they were all types of people. They were just connected by the fact that they sailed and settled in different parts of Europe. And came from Scandinavia. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that, you know, the other thing about Vikings that no one wants to think about, really, is that in the... 20th and 21st century they have become very much associated or have been co-opted to a large degree by white supremacists and by nationalists who want to see them as evidence of some kind of nordic or white literally supremacy that if they are great warriors and they want to take all of these stories and show that the white quote-unquote 
past was somehow better than anything else um to the extent that when you you know you see someone with a rune tattoo much like if you see someone they've done it to the romans as well so you know you see someone with a rune tattoo or you see somebody with who likes romans too much and you just have to be a bit like might as well be a swastika (laughs) yeah just to double check is this a history thing or is this a nazi thing yeah (laughs) (laughs) like we do just have to just quickly check in a little bit because it has been so thoroughly co-opted by those those communities and because what they want to see is not settlers or even colonizers because i think you can absolutely call them colonizers of both you know both iceland which didn't have anybody living there but an attempted colonizations of newfoundland and the very successful colonization of britain and ireland and the mark that they have left on it but they don't want to see them as that they want to see them as um great they want to see that as proof that they are inherently superior and that they have this inbuilt born right to be seen as superior which is obvious nonsense which is yeah and just against it in all its forms but because the vikings were way more complicated than that and they begin as basically small bunches of lads going i don't have any land here in sweden or what will become sweden i don't have any future here no one will marry me because i don't have any money but i have got a group of friends (laughs) and i've got a boat and i've got a sail now on my boat and i wonder what is over there and it escalates wildly (laughs) from there but that is you know the same thing that people have done all over the world from you know polynesia to the americas to the romans themselves like there's always a bunch yeah. of lads somewhere who are like i'm unsatisfied and i want to know and what's i think over i there. could be more powerful if i went over there yeah. and it is in particular like this period of time it was a lot of going places and trying to conquer them and winning more land by killing someone else and uh, you know they were just yeah one party at the buffet and then meeting charlemagne and being like you seem to have a lot of gold and an elephant <laughs> and i want a lot of gold and an elephant <laughs> <laughs> i love the the fact that charlemagne once rode his elephant to fight the vikings and he got the elephant from the caliph in iraq and I just like that's one of those stories that just completely demolishes I think the idea of pre-modern world as being isolated as these being people who'd never left their village and the only people who moved around were armies or that there was no communication between you know Asia and the Middle East and and Europe but actually it has all been interconnected at all times yeah and yeah people were constantly moving about all over the show that's this is my new bugbear this is my bugbear for 2023 which is the idea that (laughs) pre-modern people didn't leave their villages (laughs) excellent i support it (laughs) yeah i'm gonna bring it up every time (laughs) all right we've been talking for like an hour and next time we're going to do sagas and mythology and talk a bit yeah. about where they come from and what their deal is and why you should you can't learn anything about it from Marvel. <laughs> God damn it. I love learning things from Marvel. <laughs> they seem to know so much. I reckon that they have their Norse history absolutely down. I get really bummed. I, I like I like a good superhero movie. I mean, obviously, most of them aren't good, but I like the ones <laughs> that are. But I, I find it a real shame that they don't bother to, like talk about what does that do to your faith if you discover that thor is real like, right if you're just and he's just like walking around london he's just a lot walking around and like what does it do to thor to find out that actually people pray to gods and expect them to help them and he hasn't been doing that <laughs> he, he hasn't hear been prayers. doing that. and how does he understand like the idea of a single god like he understands yeah. himself as a god so what and he knows that he is an immortal and unchanging and super powerful being but the idea of an eminent god who is omniscient and omnipresent is a completely different thing yeah anyway if there's any fan fiction out there about how thor and odin and the like wrestle with the concept of a monotheistic religion then uh, send it over (laughs) (laughs) ideally it will be very theological but i feel like someone's definitely written it and i would like to know yeah so that's what we're going to talk about next time 
Yeah. The final kind of thing, the final question is, were the Vikings the ISIS of the 900s, where ISIS here is referring to the Islamic state of Iraq and Syria or the Islamic state of Iraq and the Levant? And the answer is no, because they were not in any way ideological. (laughs) (laughs) No, they just wanted the gold. And yeah, and I think that that is the large thing. Like they do occupy a lot and they do take people's land and take over. But ISIS is entirely driven by an ideological belief in creating a Muslim homeland and creating a caliphate and a very specific interpretation of what Islam is in that. Whereas the Vikings are nowhere near as organized, have absolutely no ideology other than that looks cool that will make me rich. (laughs) I personally would quite like to be quite powerful. And that is, it is, it's actually incredibly individualistic, the Vikings. They are very much, I want to be powerful. In order to be powerful, I need to have a band of guys with me and I need to provide. And yeah, there is no, no underlying ideology. Hmm. But yeah, so that's, that's the answer to the questions, hopefully. Quite complicated so far, but yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything further to add, Janine? No, I don't (laughs) think so. I mean, I can't trust that that's true, but I can't think of anything right now. (laughs) Well, if you think of anything, we'll mention it next week. (laughs) But yeah, so we're back. We're here to ruin everybody's fun again, but to tell you that the Vikings were actually five foot six and had terrible teeth, and that's great. (laughs) That's the most important thing. If you take one thing away, take away that Mm -hmm. they were short and had bad teeth. And when they smiled, people recoiled. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, till next time when we will be answering the rest of the question, which is what's the deal with Nordic myth and Viking sagas. Yeah, you can find us and all of the sources that were used for this at Mm historyofsexy.com. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you can find me at Nuclear Teeth in all places. And you can find me at J9 and F in all places. And you can find Oliver at at Kiwa in, I believe, all places, which is K-E-E-W-A. And until next time, bye, Janina. Bye.